Even $2,000 is not enough to save millions of families in the United States from utter ruin. Should it be $600 or $2,000? Is this the real choice? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis, and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited again to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. We talk about how the economy can be reconstituted on a new basis so that the needs of the people and the planet come before profit. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He is the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf, that's R-D-W-O-L-F-F dot com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So I'm looking at headlines from the last couple days. Larry Summers, that he would have been, of course, Obama's Treasury Secretary. $2,000 stimulus check, a serious mistake. Not just a mistake, Professor Wolf, a serious mistake. Biden ally Larry Summers, a former Treasury Secretary, said $2,000 stimulus check is bad. Here's from Forbes magazine. Former Clinton Treasury Secretary Larry Summers comes out against $2,000 stimulus check. Uh, A weird world we live in, Richard. Obviously, anyone who's looking at the situation objectively, who sees that as many as 40 million Americans are facing eviction, that the official number of people who have food insecurity, also known as hunger, is now 50 million, 8 million more plunged into poverty. And the millionaires in Congress talk about, should it be 600? Should it be 2,000? Is there something maybe perhaps even morally, ethically, not to mention economically wrong about a bigger check? That's Larry Summers' point. Anyway, I want to get your take on this. Yes, for me, uh, what is stunning in all of this is that the issues, the failures of the American economy these days, the 25 million unemployed, and that's a conservative number, collecting unemployment compensation, as you put it, the the 40, 50 million that face evictions, uh, even with the new bill just signed, the eviction moratorium ends uh, at the end of January which is barely a month from now, and so on. Uh, It strikes me as unspeakable that we are debating between $600 and $2,000. What an amazing act of this system protecting itself against the kinds of criticism and the kinds of change that are needed 
by trying to get away with the notion that that's what we should be debating, whether we give them way too little or just too little money. Look, let's be clear, because everybody can understand this. Millions and millions and millions of people. The estimate, by the way, is on the order of 60 to 70 million Americans. We're coming up to close to half of the labor force have been unemployed for some period of time between March and right now. Some of them only a few weeks, some of them the entire uh, period of time. We all know people in that situation, people who worked in restaurants or spas or churches or movie theaters or all of the things that have been closed some or all of the time. Those people suffered when they were unemployed. They had to use their savings either while they waited for unemployment compensation or to supplement the inadequacies of our unemployment compensation. They were frightened about the disease. If they got the disease, they suffered even further losses of all kinds. Uh, it, it really bespeaks a kind of blindness that is willed by a person not to see that the needs of these people far exceed anything having to do with a one-shot $600 or a one-shot $2,000. Is $600 better than nothing? Which, by the way, the leaders of the Republican and Democratic Party wanted us to accept up until a few nights ago. Or is $2,000 what we should accept. These are, these are grotesqueries. Neither of them comes close to what people need. What they need is a ton of money to make up for all they've lost, way more than any of those things, to get their rental or their mortgage payments back on track, to cover the accumulated expenses, the disease and or unemployment made them uh, undertake to repair their damaged relationship with the landlord they have, and on and on and on and on. And they need, above all, a job, and a job not next week, next month, now, that they can rely on, that they can settle into, that can provide them with the, the flow of income without which they can't make decisions about their children's education or their housing or their own future. I mean, you're dealing with an economy that is failing to provide for public schooling, public housing, public services across the board. And instead of dealing with the magnitude of this breakdown, you're debating whether to give people a one-shot uh, $600 or a one-shot $2,000. This is an admission of failure that keeps enlarging upon itself in a way that makes people, and I'm happy about this, question the system. They should have been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years. It's now come to a head in such a way that questioning the system is something you really have no choice but to do. Richard, let's talk a little bit about Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary. Um, he said, and he's also, just so our audience understands, he's a big shot inside the Democratic Party, former president at Harvard, uh, removed in another controversy scandal when he actually spoke his mind. 
Uh, this is him speaking, and, and he's an advisor to Joe Biden. He's the economic advisor to Joe Biden. He said, uh, "He said here, here's the problem." He said that a two thousand dollar check checks to everyone could quote overheat the U.S. economy. Now, I wonder, just you know, we hear, hear that expression a lot. You know, it's sort of one of the kind of cliche expressions, and most people who aren't in finance don't have stocks. They when they hear overheat the economy, they're trying to think like, what does that, what does overheat the economy mean? Well, maybe he's implying it will be create in like an inf- inflationary spiral, et cetera. But then you think, well, the United States spends a trillion dollars every year on uh, these kind of unique commodities, also called armaments that aren't sold, uh, you know, on the marketplace. They don't really contribute that much to the circulation of commodities. We can't use a tank and we can't use a, a missile. It can only be used in battle. It can only be replaced after it's either you know been warehoused and never used or destroyed in battle. It doesn't really contribute anything, but we spend a trillion dollars a year on that. And then the, the other thing is that the earlier relief packages, so-called from the Federal Reserve and the federal government, which is not just the CARES Act, but also loan guarantees such that there may have been as much as $5.5 trillion uh, provided by one, either the government or the Federal Reserve, either in the form of cash or loan guarantees. And none of there was no talk about how that would, quote, overheat the economy. But when it comes to giving people just a pittance more, Larry Summers, the Democrat, Joe Biden advisor says we have to worry about overheating the U.S. economy. That's not what most unemployed Americans are worried about right now. No, that's to say the least. And, and, it, and it's really crappy, if you pardon my expression, it's crappy economics. Here's the basic idea. And you're quite right. Overheating simp- is just a, uh, a dramatic way of saying inflation. And the idea here is very simple. If the government borrows more money, which is the only way the government could give uh, the mass of people $2,000 each, or for that matter, $600 each, the government is already spending more than it takes in in taxes. Absolutely nothing is being done to raise taxes. Therefore, if the government is going to be spending more, which is what we're talking about, that would have to be borrowed money. And they The way that the government gets that money, I won't go into the details, is basically these days that the Federal Reserve prints it up, literally creates it out of nothing, which it is legally entitled to do, and provides that money uh, to the federal government, which can then spend it. And as I say, can spend it on $600 a person or $2,000 or literally any amount it chooses. Okay, now let's just follow the bouncing ball. If you create all this new money, and you give it to the mass of people, and the mass of people take this extra money and go out and spend it, and here comes the big one, and there's no increase in output of goods and services, well then, yes, the extra money uh, will bid up the price of the limited supply of goods and services. But there are two ways, or actually three, that you can avoid that. 
He knows this perfectly well. The first thing is you increase output. You take a variety of steps to produce more goods. If you have the more goods, meaning the more money being spent, there's no need and there's no likelihood that inflation will occur. That's one. Number two, you could avoid the government having to you know, print more money and give it to people by taxing the rich a good bit more and using that money to cover the 600 to 2,000, then you wouldn't need to increase the money supply at all. You'd simply be moving the money from the super rich. And we've got enough billionaires in this country that we could tax all of them. And that would be more than enough money to cover all of these payments and still leave those two or three or 400 billionaires at the top, the richest people in the world. So we could easily then avoid any increase in money and still cover these payments. And the third one is the one that Richard Nixon used in 1971. You have a wage price freeze. The government says no one is allowed to raise prices. That way you can give people the extra money and they will not, the businesses that sell to the people will not be able to raise the price. The only way they'll be able to respond to people's extra purchasing power, if they get such uh, payments, is by ordering the production of more goods, which is a good thing because that'll put more people to work. Now, it is clear, it is clear that Summers knows all of this. This is standard economics. There is nothing but ideology that is going on when someone tells you that a particular act, like giving people money, is going to cause an inflation. That, that's a possibility, but it is in no way a necessity. And to represent otherwise is just this side of dishonest. Richard, let's talk about why there are so many regular economic crises in this particular economic system. You know, I was reading a little bit in the last few days, I was reading some by, by Frederick Engels, who, you know, talks about, and he was, of course, with Marx, the co-author of the Communist Manifesto and many other important works and what is now known as, as Marxism. But he talks about, and, and Marx, of course, talked in Capital about the regularity of capitalist crises, meaning crises that happen not because of COVID or not because there's a hurricane or not because some other natural or unanticipated uh, crisis or catastrophe, but every seven to 10 years. And he, and he talks about that this was a, you know, a decipherable pattern since 1825 that, you know, capitalism goes through these cycles, what, what we call in modern language and popular vernacular, the boom-bust cycle, that there's a boom phase of capitalism in the business cycle, and that ultimately leads to the, the bust, and this happens regularly, so that more and more is produced during the boom period, a different competitive capitals are selling their products, they're realizing their profits at the time of sale, uh, even though perhaps they're making their profit at the point of production, they're realizing the profit once the product is sold. But at a certain point, they can't sell all that which has been produced because more has been produced than can be sold at a profit. And as a consequence, uh, capital starts to lay off workers, uh, reduce uh, supply, 
and we go through a period of what's called a recession or when it's really terrible, a depression, and it happens every seven to 10 years. I'm just wondering if this is a, a pattern that is clearly ob observable. Is there and are there things that the government, even a capitalist government can do that either mitigates or uh, abolishes or ends the pattern if the problem is more has been produced, if there's overproduction of goods that can be sold at a profit, does that or can that be compensated by increasing consumption by the government coming in, stimulating the economy or what Larry Summers fears, I guess, overheating the economy by giving people enough money so that uh, they can buy the excess, the surplus. So instead of it being overproduced, it's not overproduced because others are purchasing it. Let's just talk about this because, you know, as we come to the end of 2020, we're looking at the year in review, but it's also the end of a decade. And in fact, it's the end of the first two decades of a new millennium. And, you know, we started a millennium with an economic crisis. Then in 2010, at the end of the first decade, big economic crisis. Now we are in 2020, another big economic crisis. You might call it uh, the housing crisis in 2010 or the dot-com boom in around the turn of the century, or now it's the COVID-related crisis. But again, this pattern, this regularity, let's talk about the, the, the characteristic features of this and what governments can do, should do, or won't do. Sure. <clears throat> First, let me perhaps be useful to your audience. There is an agency in the United States called the National Bureau of Economic Research, referred to by economists as NBER. They are the organization that keeps track of the business cycles, both in the United States and more globally, that afflict capitalism. That's where an economist goes to get the dates, you know, literally what month and what year did this particular downturn happen? How many months or years did it last? When did it stop being a downturn and the economy go into its upturn phase? All of that kind of record keeping is done by the NBER and anyone interested in the topic, just go find them on the internet and you will get more information than you're looking for about this reality. So let me turn then to what the reality is. According to the NBER, uh, and there's debates in economics about this, they, they see a cycle every four to seven years. You refer to a view of every seven to 10. There are debates about exactly what the average is, but you can see they're close enough that we can save in simple English, every few years, whether the few is four or eight or something in between, every few years, the capitalist economic system takes a dive. What does this mean? It means something very simple. Suddenly, large numbers of people are thrown out of work. Large numbers of businesses reduce uh, production partly, by course, by firing people who work there. Uh, many businesses go out of business and never come back. 
because the individuals have lost their jobs in large numbers, because business is down, the tax revenues paid by businesses and individuals to local, state, and federal governments also go down, which means those governments have less money with which to provide public services. It is a wild absurdity of a capitalist system that precisely when the private sector goes down, when the capitalist system throws people out of work and crunches a lot of businesses, people of course need more public services to compensate for this suffering of the private crash, uh, but they can't get those because the way the system works, the revenues of the government are pinched and they have to deliver fewer public services just when we need them most. Put that even aside, what has capitalism done over the 300 years, long before Engels talked about it and ever since Engels talked about it, we have continued to have these crises. And of course, and this is what's happening today, as the crisis happens, as the crash happens, as millions of people lose their job and businesses are crunched and government revenues pinched, there will always be people who are smart enough to say, this is a systemic problem. This keeps happening. Why are we living or why are we tolerating an economic system that imposes this unstable cycle experience on us? Can't we do better? And the very question has led to political movements and general strikes and all kinds of activities that are critically focused on the system. And the people who love capitalism, the businesses who sit at the top of this system, they're not stupid. They've watched this same process and they are very concerned and they have wanted to get capitalism in a place or to a place where it no longer has these kinds of cycles. It's a little bit like having an illness that every so often, you know, affects your, gives you a headache or gives you a stomach ache. And eventually, you know, you, you don't want to be interrupted at a surprised at an important event because something is not working in you. And then you ask for the medical profession to fix it, to, to do something, give you medication, do a surgery, whatever is necessary to deal with this. Well, capitalism as a system in every country has worked very hard to try to come up with a mechanism that will end these cycles so that they don't face every four to eight years, whatever it is, another downturn with its pot potential to upend the system. And I'm here to tell you, which any economist would, that after 300 years of relentless efforts to get this system free of its cyclical instability, every one of the efforts made failed. That's why we're in one now, and a doozy of one. It's not just a downturn, it's a very bad one, getting compared most of the time with the Great Depression of the 1930s, which was the worst of these downturns in the entire history of capitalism. So it's important to understand that if you don't like the instability in your life, your inability to buy a home because you don't know whether you'll have the mortgage payment when the next crisis comes. 
etc., etc. If you're aware of the damage done, if it has been done to you or someone close to you, then I am afraid I have to tell you that your problem isn't with this or that cycle. Your problem is with a capitalist system that works this way. Last point. Are there things governments jump in and do uh, to try to moderate the impact, to reduce the impact? Of course there are. Governments get desperate. They can see what's going on. They can see people turning against the system. They're pressurized by business interests. Do something, the business CEOs tell the government. So the government does something. What? A variety of things. Welfare. It goes to the people most damaged by this system. You know, the last hired, the first fired, the real victims of the cycle, because every time it turns down, they're the first ones let go. And every time it turns up, they're the last ones brought back in. Those people get desperate. You know, the Frederick Engels you mentioned before and Karl Marx, they talked about those particular people and the damage done to them personally, family-wise, psychologically, by being in this yo-yo position at the wrong end of capitalism. So the system has to worry about those people because they have the least to lose. So it creates something called welfare, you know, a housing voucher, uh, a food stamp, things like that to help these people tolerate the capitalism that puts them in this awful position. Here's another thing they do. The government comes in, if there is overproduction, which is one of the ways the crises happen. It's not the only way, but it's one. When that happens, the government will come in and it will compensate for what people can no longer afford to buy and that therefore that threatens the system with a crash. The government comes in and says, no, we'll buy. We will buy goods and services that the public can't afford in order to keep those businesses going. The, the military expenditure you referred to before, that's a classic example of that. The government spends a trillion dollars buying toilets and uh, sheets and towels and vehicles and all kinds of stuff uh, for a military, parks them somewhere out in the desert where they can simply rust and disintegrate because the purpose has nothing to do with the ostensible protection of the United States. It's really much more a program to offset the cycles by having the government buy when you've immiserated your population and they can't afford to buy. So yes, the government does all kinds of things, including giving cash outlays between $600 and $2,000 to try to get through each of these downturns. But notice what I just said. The point is to get through them. You are not allowed in the United States to say the system is the problem. The system is what we have to change. No, each time you're going to get through the moment's crisis, this year's collapse, and the idea is to do it without changing the system, without questioning capitalism. And that's why there's something so childish about then being surprised, upset, when the next crisis comes four or five years from now. 
The answer is to understand by not changing the system, you guaranteed through each crisis that the next one would just be a few years down the road. And that's what's being done now, both by the Trump administration and from what they've said by the team assembled by Mr. Biden, because on this question of not ever challenging capitalism, the difference between the two is the difference between Tweedledum and Tweedledee. I think that's so important. And and for people to understand that this crisis, the so-called boom-bust crisis, which takes so many tens of millions of people and through no fault of their own, plunges them into into ruin. They lose their jobs. They lose their income. They lose their savings. Maybe they lose their home. It's not their fault. They didn't do anything different the day they were laid off than the day before. Uh, it's really, they live in an economic order that that has this as a characteristic feature of the economic order. So if people say, well, capitalism uh, rewards those who take chances and takes risks and you know that's why we have cheaper commodities and the the consumer decides if this product is bad we won't buy it if it's too expensive we won't buy it it's it's got a kind of a disciplining effect that makes capitalism efficient this comp- competitive feature of capitalism makes it uh dynamic and yet at the same time the same system has this which everybody recognizes as you said including the capitalists and their economists and their apologists, they recognize that this is a feature, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It's really a byproduct of a particular way we've organized the economy. In in the piece that I mentioned from Engels, which is Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific, which after the Communist Manifesto was perhaps at the end of the 19th century, the most well-read of the socialist literature, uh, even perhaps more well-read than the Communist Manifesto, as labor parties and social democratic parties formed throughout Europe. Uh, Engel says, in these crises, we're talking about the crises of overproduction, the contradiction between socialized production and capitalist appropriation ends in a violent explosion. And by socialized production, what he means is that all of the commodities that we have in society are the consequence of social labor, not one worker producing a commodity, but tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of workers, many of whom are coming from different places. Uh, If you look at any single commodity, uh, its production is socialized, but the ownership is private. The accumulation of the profit goes to the owner, and the owners are competing with each other for market share. And so there's an anarchy of production based on private ownership. And thus, Engels is making the argument that the the way this regular crisis of overproduction and thus recession and depression and human misery, it can be ended by harmonizing ownership with the productive process itself, harmonizing social ownership with uh, social production, meaning ending competition so that society uh, develops commodities, prepares commodities, produces them, distributes them based on what society and people need rather than this endless 
anarchic search for profit from each individual capitalist, meaning that there's hope. It doesn't have to be this way. It's not a divine mandate. It's not God did not give us the system. It's not the end of history. This is a social system that can be altered and it can be changed. And there's an inherent optimism in the writings of Engels or, or socialists in general that human beings can change their own history and that uh, as a consequence, the crisis that seems to plague so many people so frequently that this can be ended. And my final question to you is, as we go forward into 2021, we can see the trend towards the popularization of socialism or the interest in it, the quest for it, the desire to learn about it. After many decades where it was a taboo subject, it seems to me that this is from a political and a, and an organizational and an educational point of view, the most important thing at all of all is to help people understand that it doesn't have to be this way, that there are alternatives. Absolutely. I could not agree more. There is no reason why a tiny minority, the owners, a tiny minority of the population, whether this is an individual or a family or major shareholders of a corporation or the board of directors that are elected by major shareholders, these are all tiny minorities facing a huge majority, which are called employees. The minority are called employers. That's a particular way of arranging economic enterprise. It's the different from master-slave, it's different from lord and serf, but it's similar to them in the sense that it's a minority dictating to a majority. And that's why, when you have it that way, it's logical for the minority to be focused on their own well-being, we call that profit-driven, and not by the well-being of the majority, who are not 100% interested in profit. They're just as interested in a secure job, a decent wage, a healthy workplace, some democracy at the workplace. These are issues that are of no interest to the minority that run the business. For them, to quote them, profit is the bottom line. But it isn't for the majority. And as long as you accept the system, you're going to be frustrated about that difference. And the solution is to change the system, to bring democracy, for example, into the workplace, into the enterprise, and say, in order for this enterprise to, to democratically serve the majority, you have to put the majority in charge. And the majority are employees not employers. And at that point, you discover that worker co-ops is an alternative way to organize an economy that you don't have to live within the constraints of capitalism. You never did, but okay, it took you a long time, maybe three or four centuries, but you finally figured it out. It took the slaves a long time, too, that you're not in a position to go back to the beginning of this program choosing between $600 and $2,000. There's a much bigger prize if you change the system. You'll never have to be in that kind of beggary situation again. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books. He joins us every Wednesday 
in this segment of our show where we talk about the biggest economic news of the week. His latest book is The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at R.D. Wolf, and Wolf is W-O-L-F-F, two Fs, rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, thank you. We'll see you next year. All right, and a happy new year to all of you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.